everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Break. And in this episode, I look back on Star Trek Picard. I also review the Sesame Street documentary, Street Gang. I'll try to answer a question that I got at a fancy fair, and I will give you my review of the books I read this week. Plus, Apple's headset, news, and details about our Silmarillion initiative. This episode is brought to you thanks to my patrons, and I want to welcome two new patrons to our community, Bobby Nunez and Steve Duncan. Welcome to the community. Thank you for your micro-donations. Um, and an invitation to all of you that are listening, if you're not yet supporting my work, but you have the means to do it, don't hesitate. You get a lot of perks, and the most important one is you become part of this wonderful community on Discord, where there's so much happening. We have clubs now where we talk about all the things that you also hear about in this uh, podcast. Plus, you can give me feedback on my shows and suggest topics and ideas for the future. So all that and more can be found at patreon.com slash Father Roderick. Do you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. They said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. I finally had a bit of rest after a couple of very busy weeks. Last uh, weekend, I was at a fantasy fair, Elfia, and if you follow me on social media, you may have seen the photos of all the beautiful cosplayers. I'm working currently on a, a small movie about that event. It's a lot of fun to go back to editing, and I've, I've set myself a, a rule, and that is I, after I went on a journey, like for instance to London uh, and to the Star Wars celebration and this time to Elfia, uh, before I undertake a new adventure, I will first wrap that into a documentary. Um, and so currently I'm, I'm challenging myself to turn the footage that I shot at the Fantasy Fair, which is a lot of cosplaying stuff, um, to turn that into a story. Um, which is a bit of a challenge because normally the, what I would do is just to make a vlog. Like, I'm here at this castle, look at all these cosplayers, the end. But, of course, that doesn't make for a really good story since I've already been at these events in the past. So I'm trying to kind of sharpen my skills when it comes to creating something new. A, a master uh, in this is Casey Neistat. He's a, a, a very famous vlogger. And uh, the other day I, I saw his last vlog... Uh, where he confesses that he's always in between two extremes. One is um, he is uh, uh, procrastinating, and so he, he he's kind of putting putting uh, he doesn't want to do what he needs to do, or he is almost on the verge of a of a burnout because he has to work so hard because he's been procrastinating for so long. And this is coming from a master storytelling stutter who used to do vlogs every single day of the week. Um, and his remedy is basically, if you, if you have a story to tell, go and tell it. Don't procrastinate, just do it, get it out there, and move on. And over time, you will actually get better to it. But procrastination is poison for the creative mind. And so I take that to heart. I'm, I'm focusing on, on the, the stories of the Star Wars celebration and on uh, the fantasy fair before I move on. However, I am planning on doing more, uh, on, on, on more journeys, more trips. I'm thinking of going to Rome in the month of May because that's still a very, very nice month to be in the Eternal City. It's not yet the scorching heat of the summer, um, but it can still already be very very nice and warm. So I'm thinking, but of course, the, the big 
the big issue is I first need to finish the two previous documentaries before I'm going to film new material. Uh, this also has to do with another idea that I got. Um, and if you listen to my podcast, The Walk, you may have heard me um, kind of pitch that to you as a, as a viewer, as a follower, as, an, as a, a listener, a podcast listener. And that is to make something special for my patrons um, and to um, go back to a format that I developed in the early days of podcasting, where I took, I would take people with me on trips, on journeys. I would go to France, and then I would just walk around, and I would narrate uh, what I saw, and we would go and visit places, and I would give a bit of background. It was a lot of fun to make those audio documentaries, and I'm thinking of maybe um, picking that up again, and to make uh, shows like that that are not really that interesting, maybe for for to just put out there. Uh, in the potosphere, although I, c I can always post it, of course, as a feed. But to make it for those of you that are really interested in following me on my adventures or, or maybe are already you know, following me along on social media and on the Discord server. Um, so one of my ideas was to go back to Rome to do a number of uh, episodes, audio episodes there. Um, I also have another uh, you know, wish list when it comes to, to trips this year. I want to go back to Scotland um, and maybe combine that with a longer journey starting in London, uh, make a documentary there about the, the, the city of stories because that's London for me is, is such an, a vibrant city where so many writers uh, uh, situate their stories from, from, from uh, Harry Potter to, uh, to uh, uh, what is it? Um, Charles Dickens and uh, so 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 much, um, and maybe make a stop in Oxford and then go north and do like a trip, maybe more of a history tour of uh, of Scotland, something like that. Maybe even uh, continue to to Ireland if that's if if that's feasible to combine. Uh, then in the summer. In August, I will be going to Brittany in, in France, uh, another fascinating region, and I, I'm looking forward to filming there as well. And then the last thing on my list is actually something I want to do at the end of this year or maybe the beginning of next year when it's springtime on the other side of the planet. And I would love to go back to Australia, to Sydney, and then go to New Zealand and then stay a little bit longer than in, in previous... Uh, I've been there twice now. But every time I only was there for five days, um, I would like to go to New Zealand for about two weeks and do a tour of the Northern Ireland and the Southern Ireland and, and tell stories there. It's such a, an amazing part of the world. Um, but that is still in the far future. But I know that I have to kind of somehow kind of uh, get it out, get the idea out, get things moving. Uh, and I know that some of you may be actually be from those areas that I just mentioned, and uh, you, you may have input for me or ideas or places to stay or things to, to do or things to not do. So that's why I'm already giving you this, this very early list of, of destinations. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant when it comes to France or hesitant. I'm a bit wary. Last year I was in, in, in the north of Italy in, in Tuscany, and it was so hot. And I heard that Right now, in Spain and in France, in certain areas, it's already uh, blistering. Uh, there's blistering heat. Uh, they're already wor uh, worried about uh, about big fires and and whatnot. So, of course, the 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 weather is all over the place. It's so extreme nowadays. It's very hard to predict how it will be in August. I hope it's if it 
if it's too hot, I'm not even sure I want to go there. Because last year in Tuscany, with those temperatures, they went up all the way up to 40 degrees. That was not fun anymore. I couldn't sleep. It was exhausting. Um, and this is supposed to be my vacation as well. So uh, I, I, I prefer to go to Scotland where it rains and it's cold. At least we'll have something to complain about. Plus, <laughs> I prefer cold over overheat. Anyway, that's uh, that's what's going on in my life. That's what hopefully will arrive. What will happen in the near future? Keep following for for more. How do you not like movies? They're predictable. Like the guy gets the girl, and that kid sees dead people, and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. I'm gonna give it to you. So, Star Trek Picard, one of the best seasons, no, absolutely the best season of the entire three-season series, but maybe also one of the best uh, series of the entire franchise has now wrapped. And it uh, the, the, the last episode of the third season was fittingly called The Last Generation, and it kind of concludes the story of... Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek that most of us grew up with. And uh, I absolutely loved what they did in the third season. Kept me Keeps me wondering why they didn't do that for, for season one and season two. They did also use a few elements of those first two seasons in, in the way they kind of concluded the story. So that was good. But I still feel that, that, that they took way too long to find what this what this series should be about. But hopefully it is a promise for the future of Star Trek. If they can bring this level of storytelling and this kind of quality writing to the, to the franchise, then I have high hopes for Star, Star Trek. And let's be honest, it's been a little bit uneven for the past few years. I love it that we get new Star Trek. Let's begin with that. After Voyager and DS9, I didn't think that Star Trek would ever come back in the way it's back they brought it back now, and with the movies, the J.J. Abrams timeline, that went nowhere after a while. So um, to have these ongoing television series makes me super happy as a, as a, 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 a trekker. Um, but it's been uneven. Um, Star Trek Discovery ultimately wasn't what I hoped it would be. I love the way the series looks. It is definitely one of the you know best-produced series but the, st the storytelling, the writing was all over the place. And in the end, I'm not surprised that they, that they want to end uh, the, the, the season. They're going to bring back some of the characters, at least, um, in a standalone movie about Section 31. So that, that was originally planned as a television series, but they're going to do just one television movie. That's pretty cool. I hope that Star Wars does these things from, from time to time. Like Obi-Wan Kenobi, I think, still would have worked much better. And even Boba Fett would have been much better as a movie. Even if it's just for streaming. But instead of like, trying to make a television series... For a television series, six episodes, it's not enough. Plus, and it's, and it's too much for what it is story-wise. So it feels sometimes a bit slow. And yeah, Andor, I think, works really well as a television series. And probably wouldn't work at all as a movie. So I'm happy that they start to figure out what works best for which medium. But for Star Trek, um, the Strange New World series is um, is absolutely the best Star Trek has ever done um, until 
they made season three of Picard. I really think that that is even better than Strange New Worlds. However, we know it's 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 the end. They, they won't continue. There is a, a bit of an opening at the end of the last episode towards a, maybe a sequel series, um, but th- nothing has been confirmed. So they'll probably wait to see the results of this uh, final season and see how the fans react. And, uh, and oftentimes, um, when the fans want something, that's... That's when they start thinking, well, uh, there may already be a market for this. This is why we got Strange New Worlds. That was actually a spin-off of Discovery. And I dare to say that it far surpasses its, its original series. Um, Strange New Worlds is everything Star Trek should have been in Discovery. Um, so, but it was a happy accident. But they, didn't, they totally didn't plan on making a series based on... Uh, uh, on this kind of this spin-off crew of, of the early Enterprise. Um, but they did, and it's, it's, it just works. It's, there's a chemistry in the team in the, on the bridge. Um, it's, it has that old-fashioned feel of adventure. There is a bit of an, an arc that, that overshadows literally the entire storyline because, of course, we know that um, the, the, the captain is, is doomed to, at one point, to die. And so that, that definitely influences his decisions. But Pike, at the same time, does channel a lot of the original Captain Kirk. And he's got, he's got the kind of the adventurous and the humor of Kirk, but he's also got the leadership of Picard. And so um, I, I think he's the perfect uh, starship captain. So uh, very happy with that. And, and we'll see. We'll see if they do more. Of course, all these... these um, Companies are now dreading the, you know, rumored rider strike. Their negotiations are, are, are bound to begin very soon. And it's very well possible that there will be another crippling rider strike, which, you know, if, if that's the only way in which you can make these companies pay the riders, uh, you know, good wages, then I'm all for it. You know, let us... <laughs> Let us support the riders in in their quest to get a little bit more um, uh, of a reward for it for the incredibly important work that they do. But of course, that that would impact everything, and this is, I think, why Star Trek they're, they're being careful. Star Wars, same thing. They've got a number of shows, um, but there is already a lot on the shelf. They've, I think, deliberately been delaying, for instance, The Mandalorian. Because they knew that if we get a writer strike, that means that for about you know a couple of months we won't be able to produce anything. So we need to make sure that we already have something that we can roll out. So um, we'll wait and see. We'll see what happens. But for for now, I'm super happy with uh, with what they did with season three of Picard and the final few episodes. There were a few moments there that I I choked up. It was just so emotional, and there's so much um, that brought me right back to you know, 20 years ago when I was watching this on TV. There's a lot of nostalgia, but they didn't go all the way in terms of fan service. There was a lot of fan service, but it was also very much focused on on, on, on telling a compelling story, and I did. I, they did a fantastic job. I also want to talk about a, a documentary that I saw on HBO Max, or Max, it is, as the, the, the network is soon to be called, which is called Street Gang, How We Got to Sesame Street. And then, of course, is a play on the, on the opening song that we're all familiar with, you know, how do we, how, we, how do we get to Sesame Street? 
And let me go and, and look at see if I can play the trailer for this because it, it was a really it gives you a wonderful idea of uh, what the um, the documentary is about. So this this brings you back to the origins of Sesame Street, which was of course initiated or started in, in in the United States, but then became a global phenomenon in a lot of countries. Uh, this was either uh, dubbed or subtitled, um, but also uh, in in my country, in the Netherlands, they did a localized version. So you would have Sesamstraat, Sesame Street, but it wouldn't be the same street because the original street, of course, is, is kind of wants to evoke the the street life in in New York, which of course is we don't have that kind of street life in the Netherlands. So they made um, a a composite program that very much it was inspired by what they did in the United States, but it was a totally new street, new characters. We even had our own big bird. Like the American big bird was yellow and our big bird was blue. It was called Pino. The The character of the birds, very much the same, but they looked totally different. Um, they did use a lot of the material from uh, especially everything that was the Muppets, they were able to dub it. So that still was the same, but then all the rest was localized. And I think it's very important for an educational show like Sesame Street to keep it localized. Otherwise, it wouldn't work for the kids. So let's play this, uh, this trailer here. Um, then, of course, I need to change the audio, which is always an issue here when I'm working with multiple computers. Uh, let me see if I can change that to the roadcaster and then start again. And now we should be good to go. Here we go, very quiet. Three, two, one, and action. What do you think makes Sesame Street so appealing to kids? I hate it myself. <laughs> this was an experiment. Children were watching a tremendous amount of television. So why not see if it could educate them? Our target audience were inner-city children. We had struggled with the idea of the setting for the show. I wanted to capture that New York energy because to the three-year-old is cooped up in the room upstairs, the action is on the street. We were on pins and needles before it went on the air. It was as if the world had been waiting for this. What she is doing is what television would do if it loved people instead of trying to sell to people. I think you're right. Yeah. Yay! The diversity of the cast was unheard of. It was amazing. People of all races lived together, kids, adults, and monsters. I think they started feeling a little pressure. In the affluent suburbs of Jackson, Sesame Street is not on the air. Some who saw it apparently disliked the number of black performers. When you're growing up and you don't see yourself in the media, then you get the feeling that you're not part of this culture. Television has so much power of doing that. Take one, rolling. And see. Famous music. <laughs> I just sing it along. Jim Henson and Frank Oz are super. They were a comedy team. <laughs> Open the door. <laughs> the show is a form of immortality because if you think about it, Ernie will live forever. It was chaos, but it was the chaos of people dedicated to a real ideal, believing something could be done and having the will to do it. That's what Sesame Street's about. 
Street Gang. It's an HBO original and it is an amazing documentary. It brought me right back to my youth when I was watching Sesame Street. And I was one, I was probably already a little bit too old for Sesame Street because it was geared towards, what is it, like four-year-olds? But everything with the Muppets, I adored. I loved watching the Muppet show. And then to discover that there was this children's show that also had Kermit the Frog, which I absolutely, for me, that was that was the baby Yoda of my generation <laughs> was Kermit. And then to to see that there was, this, that, that there was the same humor um, I, I I I could totally tolerate the the rest that it was clearly geared towards younger children, but but the Muppets stuff and the Ernie and Bert, oh my gosh, I love that stuff. And even when we were already in high school with my friends, we were doing like we we knew those sketches by heart. That's how good the writing was, and how funny they. So as I said, the the there was a Dutch version of Sesame Street where they also built an entire set of a street, but it was a very Dutch. Street. You see tulips there. You've got uh, the, the the various actors, very much reflected diversity in our own Dutch society. And I think if they would have aired the American version, even now when I'm watching the documentary, there's a lot that I cannot relate to. I'm thinking, wow, this is it's Sesame Street, but it's so different. So I think if you grew up in the, in North America and you've you've only watched the American version of the show, and you'll watch this documentary. It will be even more powerful because it will it will connect with all those memories, these happy memories of watching that when you were a child. Um, so for me, it was sometimes a bit jarring to see. Well, oh, wait a minute, I had no idea that, for instance, the whole issue of of showing a diverse cast where you had people from Latin America, uh, you know, Native American uh, uh, actors and black uh, American actors uh, playing such an important role, and then also have kids from all these different groups and cultural groups in society uh, being on the screen. It, it makes me appreciate how, um, how much Sesame Street has done, I think, to, uh, to grow, to nurture a generation with this sense of understanding that, that we are a diverse culture. We are, our countries exist of a melting pot of different cultures. And, that, and that's something to be proud of, something to celebrate instead of something to make us fearful of one another. And I think in that respect, cannot be underestimated how vital uh, the role of, of Sesame Street has been in North American culture and also in the Dutch culture. The Dutch show is no longer on the air. They stopped airing that in 2018. I st still think it's unforgivable that they didn't continue it. It was, of course, monetary reasons because it's an expensive show to make because it was daily. But they could at least have continued to air this because these stories, as they say in the documentary, are, are perennial. You, they still work. Maybe you could do like a localized, uh, more up-to-date um, uh, street. You know, the, 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 the street life in the 70s is totally different from what a city uh, would, would be like today. So you could update that. But all the other clips and, and, and the, all the Muppet stuff is uh, it still works just as well today as it did back then. It's also fascinating to see how they made the show. You get a lot of behind-the-scenes footage of where you see the puppeteers and, and, and some of them actually will tell the, to the camera how they got into Sesame Street, how, how, how did they learn to become performers. And then, of course, seeing Jim Henson and Frank Oz as Bert and Ernie, uh, oh my gosh. Frank Oz, of course, later on went on to do Yoda. Uh, Jim Henson, unfortunately, is no longer with us. But what I loved about the way in which they portrayed Bert and Ernie is that uh, they, they, 
they play two very believable characters, even though there was a lot of humor. Um, but these puppets reflected their own dynamics. And so the, the back and forth between Ernie and Bert is very much like how they behaved off, off camera. And so uh, a lot of the humor you see there comes straight from real life. That, that's why it works so well. And so you see sometimes that they forget that they're puppeteering and they start to, to improvise. And it's sometimes so incredibly funny. Um, oh my gosh, I, I really laughed out loud several times while watching this, um, this documentary. What I also th thought was interesting is that a number of Muppets are not at all in... Either they're not in the Dutch version or they're completely different. I already mentioned uh, Big Bird, which in, in, in the Netherlands was blue, this big blue bird, Pino. Everybody loved Pino because he was basically like a child. And when they started to, do, to introduce the, the, the Big Bird, the Yellow Bird, um, they wanted him to be very clumsy and a bit stupid. And then the actor who was performing... Uh, the the bird said, well, you know, I think that, that we should more make make him a child, make him curious, make him and not just do slapstick stuff. And they they totally copied that with with our Pino, our bluebird, who also had this very gentle uh, attitude. And then they gave him like there was a mouse in the Dutch in the Dutch version, and a mouse would also at first just be interested in cheese and afraid of cats and then later on the mouse became another child and so there's a lot of that they found it found its own dynamic which is similar to what they did in sesame street but not not exactly the same in the documentary trailer you hear oscar the grouch who lives in a in a in a in a bin you know in a garbage can and he's very grumpy he's very much like the almost a parody of of what people imagine the new yorkers to be kind of like Rough. They always say immediately what's on their mind, and uh, they're not. They don't have good bad manners. Very cool character, but in the Netherlands, there's no equivalent. They didn't have that. Maybe because um, we don't have garbage cans like that. <laughs> we're a very, I don't know, very clean country. And if if there were, if there was a monster living in the garbage can, we would clean it up. <laughs> However, instead, they brought in this, this human actor who played a grumpy uncle-slash-grandfather and exactly the same character as Groucho, as, as Oscar the Grouch. Not Groucho, but Oscar the Grouch. And, and so also very grumpy, but still with a heart of gold. Uh, another character super important in the American version of, of Sesame Street, but not at all present in the Dutch uh, equivalent, is Elmo. Elmo was this kind of soft-spoken red Muppet. Looked a bit to me like um, Grover, uh, but then more kinder. Um, there's a whole story about that, which I won't go into, but there's another documentary. I think it's Becoming Elmo. Um, I think it's on Netflix. That one is also very interesting, but there is a, there's a, a bit of a huh, an edge to that because the original guy who, who did Elmo... Uh, I think he ended up in prison, basically, for all sorts of stuff, stuff that uh, you don't want to be associated with a children's program. Um, but Elmo, there is no equivalent of Elmo. We don't have an Elmo character. Maybe the mouse is a little bit like Elmo, but he doesn't have that same kind of Muppet. Uh, plus, I think the mouse is female in the Dutch version. I'm not sure. But anyway, it, it still works the same, and you need to have that localized version and to a certain extent uh, because cultures are very different and as they say if you don't see yourself on the screen then 
it's not for you. And I'm thinking that is a lesson that, that is applicable to way more than just a children's program. I'm thinking this is also a very important lesson for parishes, for churches. You know, in the liturgy, you have a lot of actors. And it's a bit a bit like a Muppet show, you know? You've got the the... The, the priest, and then you've got the deacons and the altar servers, and they're all, like, dressed up, and you have vibrant colors. It's very, very similar to, you know, I like the color green in liturgy because it reminds me of Kermit the Frog, and I know it's not always easy to be green. So sometimes we switch colors. We have red or, or white or, or purple. <laughs> but we have songs. We have lessons. We have stories that we, we tell. The things are moving. However, in a lot of parishes, you will see that there is kind of this island that is populated by a certain class of liturgical actors. And they tend to sometimes be a little bit too, like a bit like a monoculture. It's, um, in, in the Netherlands, it's oftentimes elderly people, older people. They are, they are the bulk of the volunteers. So a lot of the people that read during Mass are older people. Now, I have nothing against older people. I am old myself relatively old. But um, I believe it's so important that in the liturgy, you ha also have that diversity that should reflect your, your, um, your, your congregation. It is so weird that we keep saying, well, we need to have more young people in church, but we don't give them a, a responsibility. When young people go to church, when children go to church, they don't see any... Uh, any uh, example of, of, of who they are on, on, on the altar. Um, there's only old people there. It's only like very solemn people. Where, where is the life? Where is the diversity? Where are the cultures, the songs that we sing? It's often very much one particular style that was, you know, created in the 70s. We keep singing these same songs. But in, in, in the meantime, our churches have changed. Our, our churches are full of migrants. And they're from all over the planet then why do we only sing the Dutch songs or the Latin stuff? I, I have nothing against that, but it does not reflect the, the, you could say, the richness of the congregation. And I feel like it, it, liturgy, in a certain way, part of the liturgy is also a spectacle. It's, you, you see in a ritualized form um, what life is all about. And so we should have that, that, that care to make sure that people see themselves in a certain way in the liturgy, that they can relate to what's happening on the altar. If you don't, then it becomes these separate worlds. And uh, this morning I, I just uh, celebrated Mass, and, uh, and, and that was a, a, a tough one to do because um, normally there is a special Mass for English-speaking people in the parish, but once a month, in the, like usually it's the fifth week, the fifth weekend, the fifth Sunday of the month, they only have one Mass, and everybody from all the uh, churches in the vicinity, everybody comes together in one church. So I had to do that Mass because um, part of our um, parish is currently on pilgrimage in, in Lourdes, in France, including uh, Eric. And so um, I had to celebrate that Mass, but I realized that there were probably quite a few English-speaking people in church. However, most of the liturgy was all in Dutch. So I did do a short summary in English of my homily, but afterwards I still felt that I, I that wasn't enough. We should have done more, um, maybe even invite some of the students to do, to do a reading or to do some prayers in English and just show them that they are 
just as much part of the church community um, as as the the white people, so to say. So anyway, lots of lessons uh, I think you can take away from uh, from Street Gang from this documentary. Um, and it's just it's just fun to go back in time. Uh, what, what is Sesame Street all about? What is it teaching? At one point, they say they ask them, themselves this question: You know, what are we teaching here? And then the answer is, we're teaching happiness. Uh, we're we're teaching that accepting yourself and uh, being being inspired to hope that you can become some someone you never dreamed of being uh, that that hope and that joy that happiness that is what makes the world better and and that is what we should never forget and we should teach that at an early age and when I'm looking at all the acidity and the polarization in our society. We need more storytelling like Sesame Street. We need to teach people at a young age and remind them when they grow older that even though we may be very different from one another, we may, we may have uh, different points of view, but in the core, we're all children. We're all called to that same hope and that same joy. And, and yeah, I think we, uh, we need shows like Sesame Street to remind us of that. <laughs> Catholics rock! It's time for a quick visit to the Peculiar Bunch, and this is the place where I try to answer whatever question you may have. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. No meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? Today I want to actually try to answer a question that uh, was asked to me by someone I met at this fantasy fair last weekend. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. Now, on a fantasy festival, you, you meet a ton of people from all over the place and with very different backgrounds and, and a lot of let's be honest, people that are just searching for spirituality and inspiration. And it kind of depends. There, There is a festival later this year uh, where it's very esoteric. Um, and it's because of the family that organizes it has always been a little bit in the New Age stuff. So you see a lot of divination there. And, you know, and... I, I, and then there's this festival, Elfia, which is a, a bit more kind of mainstream. But I was talking with um, the, the Tolkien Society in the Netherlands, and they deliberately choose to have a presence at Elfia, but not at Castlefest, because they, they say, you know, uh, Castlefest for, for us is too much esoteric stuff, too much... Uh, uh, tarot reading and that kind of stuff, and it makes us. It doesn't. It doesn't work well with what we stand for as a Tolkien society. The values of Tolkien are very, very um, different from from that kind of stuff. And um, I, I, I had no idea, but I, I, I applaud them for for being you know a bit critical. However, I, I do get to meet a lot of people uh, that are you know not Christian or no longer Christian, and so I, I get into very interesting discussions because they see that I'm a priest, so they will ask me very quickly. <laughs> they will ask me all sorts of, of very deep questions, and so I, I, I was talking to this one guy, and uh, he had this theory about God. He had been at a uh, I think he was Catholic originally, and then he went to a Protestant school, and now he kind of made his own 
his own theory about God and the world. And he said, I, th I think there are two gods. I think there's one God that is basically um, a, um, a fruit of our imagination. It's kind of what we project God to be. And then you've got a spiritual force in our world. And that is a God that's not from the world of ideas, but it's a God that can actually influence events and, you know, the miracles that you read about in the Bible and also the unexplained paranormal uh, stuff. Maybe it's aliens, maybe... And then it became this whole theory about basically a sort of duality. And uh, I try to interject that, well, you know what, it's, it's, it's um, from my faith, we would say there's only one God. Uh, but all over the world, you find traces of that God, and, and, and people will have sometimes an incomplete idea of who God is. But that is why Christians have the revelation. You cannot just rationalize what God is and what he's not. You can, you can say what God probably isn't, but it's very hard to say who God truly is in a positive way. But that is why we read the Bible, because God himself has shown who he is and has told us who he is and how he wants us to live our lives. But I could tell that it was it was a little bit too much for that conversation. Um, <laughs> it was probably also because if, if, well, if you follow that line of thinking, then you would, you would have to say farewell to that idea that there are two gods. And, you know, for some people, once they have constructed their own version of reality, it's very difficult to let go of that. Uh, and that's true for us Christians as well. There's always confirmation bias. You always look for things uh, and opinions that affirm your own opinion. And we're usually a bit reticent, reluctant to embrace ideas that we feel might be a threat to the way I see the world. The, the challenge of being a Christian, I think, is to... Uh, to both hold on to what you believe is true, but also to keep an open mind and to stay in dialogue with people that may have another way of looking at God and looking at the world and to, to never be afraid that that, can, <laughs> that that somehow can dilute the truth or something like that. No, if the truth is the truth. There's, a, there's only one God. Um, so we, d we shouldn't be afraid of people asking us questions or we shouldn't be afraid of criticism Always examine everything and then hold on to what, what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. So at one point, this guy is, so what do you think about astrology and horoscopes and uh, tarot and, and, and uh, clairvoyance and paranormal things? You know, for him, that was a sign that there is kind of this metaphysical presence, uh, some kind of God that, that somehow is able to to bend the the rules and the the laws of, of reality, and I told him something he didn't expect. I said, even though I am a Christian and I believe in God, but I don't believe in all that stuff. In fact, I'm very much pro science. I think it's extremely important that we use our brains and that we don't try to explain away things just by appealing to faith. You know, well, we don't understand it, so it's God. Um, no, God has given us a brain. He's given us si the, the ability to understand the world in which we live, to discover the laws that govern it. But there's only one truth, and the scientific truth can never contradict the theological truth or what the Bible says. And then if immediately, of course, well, what about the creation? You know, if you read Genesis, it says there, black on white, it is in seven days that God created the universe. And I'm thinking, but I told him, I was like, sure. 
but it's a story. That was that was penned down not so long ago, if you especially if you compare it with the actual genesis of our planet in our solar system. You know, it's it's almost as if it was written yesterday. But these stories, they are stories. And they're often based on an oral tradition that spans generations before they were written down. So these stories are a way to express a deeper truth. It doesn't mean that the stories themselves are um, uh, like a journalistic um, report of, of what happened from day to day. But it doesn't mean that they're completely invented and made up and, and false. No, they express a truth that is too big to describe or to rationalize. This is why art and stories and songs and poetry is so important. Because art and poetry and expression has this incredible ability to evoke something that we cannot grasp with just our minds. If you walk into a cathedral and you see the light shining through the, the, the stained glass windows, you know, you can explain all that in, in, in physical terms. You can say, well, it's because the, the, the light waves are then filtered and blah, blah, blah. And yet you know intuitively that this is about much more than just the physical event. It, 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 it evokes something. It makes you feel a certain way. It, 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 it transcends what we can understand. Beauty always transcends explanation. Um, love transcends the rational, the realm of rationality. You can you can give many rational reasons why you fall in love with this or that person, but there's always more. <laughs> you know that intuitively. Faith is the same thing. There are lots of reasons to believe, good reasons to believe. There's a lots of lot of history. There's a lot that I mean, the church has been here for two thousand years, and many very intelligent people have have thought about uh, about faith and about the Bible and theology. But you also know that faith is about more than just your mind and what you say amen to. Faith is also a presence, a mystery that, that somehow touches us and that we can never fully understand or describe. And this is why it's much easier to say what God is not than what God is. And this is, this is the reason that, that the church is so skeptical when it comes to all these paranormal uh, things and astrology, especially when it comes to like magic and tarot and, and, and predicting the future. Because the, the thing is, we should never be afraid of that kind of stuff. But first of all, it doesn't stand the test of rationality. It is, you cannot prove this kind of stuff. You know, it's not repeatable. Um, so a lot of these these things and, you know, the, the stories that people tell, if you look closer with a skeptical eye, with a scientific mindset, you will discover that it doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up. Um, so that's number one. Always don't, whenever you feel that you have to shut down your brain for something to be true, then it's probably not true. And the second thing is, and that's even more important, the moment that we think that through paranormal things or magic or incantations or tarot cards or the looking at the stars, we can take hold of the reality. We can influence the future. We can conjure up the dead. We kill the mystery even though it's, it feels mysterious, but what we're actually trying to do is to control 
and to ta- to hold on to to stuff, even the things that sh- should elude us. You cannot. What is faith? Faith is trusting that God is greater than you are, that He carries you, that He leads you, that His truth, His beauty, His wisdom is infinite, is infinitely bigger than than the sum of all knowledge and all beauty in the world, in the physical world. It is is trusting that God is beyond the realm of the tangible. God is the creator but he's not part of creation itself. And, and that is always where things go wrong in, in, in these esoteric circles, is that they, they, make, they, they lower God to the point where we feel that we can influence him and we can manipulate him and, 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 um, and use it for our own benefit. At the moment you try to do that, you don't need God anymore. You know, if, I, if I know the future, if I can predict the future, then why should I trust God? You know, one of the deepest, the, what makes life so interesting and so fascinating is that we don't control the future. We don't control the world around us. But what saves us is not, con- is more, is not more control. What saves us is how do you relate to what's happening to you and how can you open your heart for this God whose plan is always bigger than your plan and trust it, maybe even blindly. Because that will free you from this drive to keep everything under control, which, which is a completely fruitless endeavor anyway. Because no matter what, what these tarot readers can will tell you, you know, it, ultimately the future is in God's hand and not, not we cannot influence it. The way we influence the future is to work along with God, to do what is good. That is how we build the future. But it's not by somehow magically making things go differently from what we, uh, what we think. This is also why with prayers, we have to be very careful that our prayer doesn't become a belief in magic. Like, oh, I light this candle and so God g- will give me what I want or I, I will give uh, this amount of money to the church and then I will go to heaven. It doesn't work like that. That's not how the force works. The, the, all these, these prayer movements are literally little exercises Mo- is, these are moments where we give away our control if i light a candle it's it's a sign that i don't know how to fix this i light this candle because your light will guide me you can bring warmth in this situation where i feel only cold coldness and 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 uh, you can enlighten me where i don't see w- what my next step is going to be and and so th- but but you can you can also have in the catholic church you can have people that almost have this magical idea uh, where, where, where they feel like, oh, if I only you know, invoke this saint or that saint, then I will get what I want. That's not how it works. A saint is a friend who is, you know, the only difference with, with friends in real life is that he or she is in heaven, um, but he or she will also have to ask God. They will pray for us. If we pray them, we're basically asking them, can you pray for me? Just like you would ask your friend. But then it's ultimately, it's always God who answers. Or maybe in, in case of some requests, we'll say, well, mm, my plan is different. Trust me. It's, I'm, I'm not going to give you what you asked for, and I'm, I'm going to answer your prayer in a different way. And then it's all about trust. Prayer is not manipulation. Prayer is trust. So anyway, that is why the church is uh, very reluctant when it comes to you know New Age and all these divination and horoscopes and whatnot. Because it will... It, it's a stumbling block for faith. 
And it's much better to put your energy into growing your relationship with God and trusting him even more and asking him to guide you. Um, that is ultimately a much better investment of your time and resources than to give your money and your time away to uh, all these people that say that they can do what normally only God can do. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? Catching up on my to-do, to-read list. Um, I'm only two books behind now, and I'm uh, currently reading um, a, a very cool book about uh, the, the Spider-Man musical. Have you heard of that? I'm sure you have. It was this big flop. They wanted to do a musical after The Lion King became such a success. Then they started thinking, well, what if we do this with uh, with one of the most popular Marvel characters, Spider-Man, and we'll do like the show that it goes beyond anything people have ever seen in the theater. We'll have Spider-Man fly above the crowd and we'll do all sorts of special effects. This book... Uh, is the story of how that idea ultimately resulted in one of the biggest financial disasters in the in the theater world. And it's a fascinating look behind the scenes of how a, a Broadway show like Spider-Man or any other musical, how that, how that materializes in all these different things around a production like that that make or break it. Fascinating read. But I haven't finished that book yet. I did finish a number of other books. I've read um, a book by J.R.R. Tolkien and also with contributions of his son, Christopher Tolkien. Um, and it's called The Homecoming of Beartnoth. And I'd never heard of this, but I saw it pop up in my list of uh, new audiobooks. And what is cool about this, so there is a book version of this um, that was originally distributed to a very small group. It was for a, I think, like a convention, and they would hand that out. Um, never really uh, was published for a greater audience, so that was in the 60s. But what they found was that Tolkien, actually, so this, is, this has nothing to do with Middle Earth, but it has everything to do with the way in which Tolkien, where he got his stories from, and how his creative mind worked with existing tales. And so, um, this is an old, like, early medieval story that already existed in the form of a poem. And then Tolkien, who was, of course, a scholar of all this stuff, he said, I'm going to write a sequel to this story. So it was the story of a big war and a king who died, and that's the end of that story. And then Tolkien says, I'm going to write something similar. In a similar prose, I'm going to write this big epic poem about what happened after the king died. And so he tells this story about two uh, very humble servants of the king who go to the battlefield after the battle is is done and everybody's dead and it's a, it's a very gruesome scene and they're trying to find the body of their fallen king. And once they find him, they bring him home, hence the title, The Homecoming of Beartnoth. And um, when you read it, it is blah, it's tough. You know, it's, it's written in a language. If you've ever tried to read Silmarillion, more about Silmarillion, blah, the Silmarillion in a minute, the language is not really like afternoon relaxed reading. You really have to sit tight and, and uh, kind of work your way through the language. Um, but uh, so it's, it's not an easy read. But what made this so interesting is that uh, they discovered that Tolkien had actually recorded the poem on a tape recorder all by himself. And they have preserved and digitized and cleaned up 
this recording, they added an introduction and also an outro by Christopher Tolkien, kind of giving a little bit more context to this poem and how his father worked it. And then, but in the center of this audiobook, and I would recommend that you try to listen to the audiobook instead of just trying to read the book, is this amazing recording of Tolkien. And I imagine that he's just sitting in, in his uh, study and he's doing the voices. He's, he's uh, recording sound effects, but it's all like, this. Is, he was a writer, of course, he's not a performer. But, um, and, and we do have, this is not the only recording that we have of Tolkien, but when I was talking to the, the people from the Tolkien Society about uh, Tolkien uh, last weekend, they said, eh, you know, yeah, Tolkien wasn't the best reader of his own work, and oftentimes on his recordings he's kind of monotonous and, and just not very good dramatically. However, after that, I listened to this particular recording, and I'm, I'm discovering that there is a whole different Tolkien. Maybe it was because he was just recording this for himself. So you see a certain playful, you hear a certain playfulness, an enthusiasm, a drive that I haven't heard in any of the other recordings of Tolkien. And he, of course, knows how to deliver this ancient language you know it's it has authority he does the voices and then you i imagine him you know adding the sound effects and for instance at one point these two guys they're they're using a uh a, a wagon or something like that to carry the body of the king and then you want to hear the the wheels right and then he just used the cupboard, which had a door that squeaked. And he's like, while he is reciting the text and doing the dialogue, he moves with his other hand, he moves the door. And, he <laughs> and so to kind of, kind of convey that this is actually the, the wheels, the, the wooden wheels that you hear. And then at one point, uh, they arrive at a church. It's towards the end of the story. And then the, the poem itself describes that all of a sudden they enter this church and they're coming from a horrible battlefield, of course. And then in the church, of course, they, they, they hear these, these songs of Gregorian chant in the distance and there's the, the scent, the fragrance of frankincense. And then uh, Tolkien himself starts to sing in, in Gregorian chant and he's got a good singing voice. And, but he does it, he, he walks away from the microphone, he goes to the other side of the room, and he's like, in paradisum, and he starts to sing. And he, you can tell that he knows all these Latin texts by heart, because, of course, he, he, um, he, he was a faithful churchgoer. Um, it's an unbelievable uh, piece of, of audio history. And um, for me, it, it, it gave me a almost a glimpse, a forbidden glimpse of, of Tolkien's incredible uh, imagination and his enthusiasm as a storyteller. Um, in, in a lot of the interviews, he's kind of cerebral, but here you can tell, oh, he's in his element. This is what he loves to do, telling a story and making coming up with these goofy sound effects. And that recording was almost no one had listened to it. And then thanks, of course, to the work of the Tolkien uh, state they 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 finally uh, brought this to to the rest of the world and if, if the story is is what it is it's not uh, the, the 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 part the, the Christopher Tolkien's contribution is a bit feels a bit like uh, yeah <laughs> the book doesn't need this maybe it's a bit filler they they needed to kind of bring the total duration of the recording to about an hour so they can sell it as an audiobook. So it feels a little bit oh, superfluous. But 
it is still so amazing that we get to hear an entire story told by the master himself. If only he could have done a recording of, of him reading The Hobbit as he would read this to his, to his children when they were young. If only he would have a tape recorder at, at that time or, or The Lord of the Rings. I mean, jeez, what an amazing storyteller he is. I read a number of other books, but if you want to see my reviews of that, either go to the book club section of our Discord server if you are a part of my patron community, or um, go to my Goodreads page, also at Father Roderick, to read what else I've been reading. Um, at the end of this episode, I will talk about the Silberillion project, also Tolkien-related, so stick around. But first of all, I want to talk about food and health. Uh, let me begin with health. Um, there are two things I wanted to briefly mention. I've, of course, run a, uh, ran a marathon uh, a, a while ago. What was it already? Two weeks ago. It's incredible how fast time goes. But that was such an invigorating experience. And now I've got my 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 uh, my mindset on breaking my own personal best again in the in the in the fall of this year. So I want to run a marathon in November. Maybe I'll even run the Marathon of Amsterdam a few weeks before that. And what I want to do is to go sub four hours. Ultimately, if possible, I don't know if I can do it at my age because I'm already 55 years old. I would, I would try. I want to try to get to uh, running a marathon and qualify for Boston. Not that I will run the Boston Marathon. But to qualify for Boston, you have to run under three hours and 30 minutes. Right now, I can run a marathon in four hours and seven minutes. I trained for three hours and 50 minutes. So I'm thinking I only need to somehow go faster and, 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 and save 20 more minutes because I, I think I can already run a marathon in three hours and 50 minutes if I'm totally in, in shape. But I want to get to three and a half. So that's, that's going to be my next goal, and I, I, I know I can do it. I will do it. So after recording this podcast, I'm going to go and, and run outside. Uh, looking forward to it. Another health-related topic that I wanted to briefly mention is a, uh, an interesting um, uh, sequence of, of, of fragments from a documentary that I didn't know existed. I, I came across this on TikTok, and it was just posted by a random account, so not an official account. Um, and it's a documentary about Robin Williams. Um, of course, one of the greatest te television uh, comedians that, that, that we've known for the past century, and uh, who, of course, shocked the world by uh, hanging himself uh, at, at the age of, what was he, 60-something, 63, 64 um, which felt so out of character and so strange. And I remember the, the news people speculating about, well, maybe he's just a sad clown and maybe the, his exuberance and his humor was, a, was a, a, a facade and behind that was a, someone who was depressed, who had uh, you know, issues with substances, etc., etc. In this documentary, they make the case, um, and it's, it's filmed in, in um, collaboration with, uh, with uh, Robin Williams' uh, widow and a lot of people that have known him from, from up close. They make the case that actually Robin Williams was suffering from a very aggressive uh, form of dementia. And uh, it's, it's called Louis particle dementia, if I recall correctly, and I'd never heard of it. But 
this uh, this came out of the coroner's report on on when they they did a full exam of course what what brought him to what was there substance abuse no he was completely clean uh, there was no there were no drugs no alcohol in his blood or anything so what drove him to this suicide it turns out that they discovered his brain his body was infested with these louis particles and it's something that is attacking especially the brain i know that there, we have some some uh, some experts in in the audience that will probably know much more about this than I did. Um, But it is a degenerative form of dementia. There's no cure. And uh, it it gradually starts attacking your sanity. And it can lead... It always is fatal. So it can either lead to um, basically the brain losing all its functions, but also in a number of cases it ends in suicide because these people are... um, So their brain is so... Attacked, um, and so is, is starting to to um, uh, to shut down in so many places that sometimes people will just you know they won't be themselves anymore, and 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 then they show us how in in his career, uh, Robin Williams was already showing towards the end of his career um, to a lot of people that worked with him closely that he was he was suffering he was struggling and and um, every every. Month it became harder and harder for him to perform, but nobody nobody diagnosed him. Nobody knew that this was going on, and it was because he was so intelligent. There was a lot of neuroplasticity, which of course is our ability to you know when certain functionality in our brain for whatever reason um, is is impacted, and parts of our, our brain will start to make new connections and start to con- counteract the the things that go wrong. Are going wrong. That is, of course, an incredible gift, and and we know from just observing his career how incredibly intelligent, how smart Robin Williams was, and so he was probably his his brain was so good at masking what was truly going on that for a lot of people it was it came as a total shock and surprise that at one point in his life it just didn't he wasn't able to to continue anymore, and. Um, and, and and then afterwards in the documentary, you have a lot of people saying, well, we actually, we knew that something was up. We knew that he did the Night in a Museum movies. And, and they said in his third movie, everybody knew. He couldn't remember his lines. There was something off. But he was so good at, at powering through and masking. But, you know, if, if we would had been, if we'd been more aware what was going on, maybe we could have helped. And it wouldn't have had to end like this. And so n- another, I think, important, important story that emphasizes how important it is for our society to be more aware of, of the importance of mental health and to make sure that there are no taboos when it comes to mental health, that, that we encourage people to seek help when they struggle mentally. Because health is not just running marathons or eating or losing weight. Now that that the physical part is like one third, but we also have our emotional health. We we have our mental health, and if those that's the majority of our health and our well being. And if you don't make sure that that is in balance, then you can you can eat as healthy as you want, but you'll still end up getting sick. You know, and it's, it's this mental health is so incredibly. And I know this from a personal experience. Like how much have I learned over the, these past few years about myself, about how my brain works, about about how trauma can influence everything you do, um, and how much trying to 
seek help and healing from whatever has had an, a, a destructive impact on your mental health, how much that improves every single aspect of your life, including the physical aspects of it. Um, so I, I, I haven't looked around. Maybe I should Google uh, if I can find the source of that, of that um, documentary. But um, it's, it's good to remember that if, if you are currently in a phase of your life where you f don't feel healthy and you're, maybe you're struggling with your weight or, or you have these snack attacks, I always call them, uh, always ask yourself, well, is it just physical or may, is there something mental going on? Is there something that I can do to balance my emotions? Is there, is it, do, I, am I experiencing too much stress? Is and work on that, try or seek help with that as well. And and if you struggle with with weight, and I've I've been struggling with uh, you know uh, staying at a staying healthy um, when it comes to you know my, my overall uh, fitness levels and also my weight um, for, for most of my life. But it's only recently that I've discovered that you know it's not just about counting calories. It's about living a balanced life. If you live a life that is physically but also mentally healthy and emotionally healthy, you will actually start to become healthier physically as well. So always keep that in mind when you're counting your calories. It's not just about, about what you eat and, and about eating your, your fruits and, and veggies. No, health is every aspect of your life. And if you feel that something is wrong... Don't hesitate to ask help. If you have physical ailments, go to see your doctor. If you need mental uh, uh, help, then there are psychologists, there's therapy, there's so much that you can do. But don't ever underestimate it, including for the people around you. If, see, if you see that some, someone is suffering mentally, ask if you can do something. Maybe help break the taboo around mental health. Um, yeah, that's what I wanted to share. We are on the cutting edge of technology. Wow. Well, what does that mean? Let's plug it in. It's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device. And it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Well, all your technology stuff it just ends in disaster. But there is one more thing. No, this may be the year that we will hear those words. There is one more thing, which is a phrase that uh, Steve Jobs used to introduce something revolutionary, something groundbreaking. And uh, it is, this may be the year that Apple will actually bring us one more thing that is going to revolutionize the world or not. You never know with Apple. And that's, of course, the big augmented reality uh, headset that they are rumored to present at the next WWDC. Um, so that's in a, a little more than a month from now, in June. Now, this headset, uh, of course, is, is in, a, in a certain way, it's technology that already exists, but Apple always will take something that, that exists and perfect it and make it, you know, make it successful. Um, however, this is maybe the, the riskiest new, new category that they're going to introduce. Everybody understands a watch, even though when they introduced the Apple Watch, I was a skeptic. I was like, why, why would I need an Apple Watch? I can just, for, for, for 40 bucks, I can get a Chinese thing, and it's, it's basically the same. I only understood why the Apple Watch is, is so successful 
after after I took over John's uh, Apple Watch, and and now I can't live without it. It is so incredibly good and so so helpful. Uh, that's an example of Apple taking an existing technology and perfecting it. They did it with the phone as well. You had Blackberries where you could type. Um, you had uh, camera phones. And then Apple came with this basically this slab of, of glass and, and you could touch the screen and there was no keyboard, no physical keyboard. And everybody at first was like, okay, pff, this is not going to fly. <laughs> well, think again. Every phone that exists right now is inspired by the original iPhone. And at first, when they introduced these, these new devices, be it the Apple Watch or the, the iPhone, Apple didn't really know exactly what the selling point would be or what the... That there is no one system seller. But they, tr they make it as, as good as possible and they, they trust that the creative community of, of developers will come up with applications. And that's, that seems to be what they're doing with the augmented reality um, headset as well. Uh, it's now rumored to be able to play almost every iPad app. Why the iPad? Because those screens are horizontal. You know, the iPad system is scalable. Um, you don't want to wear a headset where you can only see the vertical screen of your of your phone in front of you, but to have a big screen that you can project on anything in your in your living room, um, and I'm pretty sure that they're going to use the lidar technology to make sure that you know. For instance, I have a wall here in front of me, and and above the the fake uh, uh, fireplace, there is a there is an IKEA frame, and it has the map of Game of Thrones on it. But I'm pretty sure that this reality headset will be able to overlay a screen. And if I move my head, the screen won't move along with it. But it knows that, that that's where the screen should be. So you get this impression that there's this massive television in your room. Those screens, the, the both eyes will have a 4K screen. So that's super high resolution. You won't be able to see the pixels like in the, in the Oculus Quest where you still have that kind of screen door effect where you can, you can tell it's not real. So it's going to be expensive. It's rumored to cost more than 3000 bucks, but next year, of course, they're going to use that same technology and make it cheaper. That's what they did with the phones. That's what they did with the watch and everything else. Um, what I think is so inter interesting is that Apple seems to do the opposite of what Facebook is doing. Facebook wants to get you into the metaverse. And if you've been following the news a little bit, you know what a disaster that has been for, for, for Facebook. They, they ultimately don't really have a clue what the metaverse is would be, but it's this idea that people want to be in this make-believe world, that they want to replace reality with a meta-reality, with a, an artificial reality, and then they will do their shopping there, and then Facebook was, of course, thinking, well, huh, we can observe their behavior, we can sell them digital goods, so we're going to make a ton of money. And I think that they still believe that. Apple was, no, we're, gonna not, we're not going to create a metaverse. We are going to augment reality. The world around you is much more interesting than whatever artificial version you can make of the world. But we can make the existing world more interesting and more useful by overlaying stuff over that world. And so the, apparently the, the headset will have a dial, like the, the little knob on, your, uh, on, on an Apple Watch, where you can, you, can, you can either make it completely immersive, where you, you shut out the outside world, or you can, you can switch back to the real world with overlaid technology. And that is probably why the rumored name is going to be Reality or Reality Pro. And I think that's so smart because that name shows you that they're doing the opposite of what Facebook and all these other um, headset makers are, are, are doing. 
it is about reality. That is your life. But we're going to make your reality better. We're going to give you tools. So when you walk around, instead of looking at your at your uh, phone, we'll just project where you should walk. Um, if you don't have a television, instead of sitting behind a, a computer, you can, you can bring your computer anywhere. You can just sit in a park and just like dial it to half-half. And then you can have that huge screen in front of you. You can type in the air just using your fingers. You don't need to carry around a mouse or a keyboard. We'll just, we'll take care of that. That is the kind of, these, these ideas are starting to leak out. And the more I hear, the more I'm thinking, yeah, they really thought about this. And, and this could be revolutionary. Um, but it will not be revolutionary in its first iteration. Uh, it will probably take a few years be before this is affordable and before everybody will embrace this. But I'm going to have a hard time resisting the urge to get like the, the, the first, the first uh, version of this because I'm so excited by this. I, I, I believe that, that there is a way to make this work and we just haven't seen it yet. But I am a believer that this is the future. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, it is time to talk about the Silmarillion Project. I have a quote from the Silmarillion by J.R.R. Tolkien, which is beautiful. And one point it reads, The love of Arda, the world, Earth, was set in your hearts by Iluvatar, by God, the God of Middle-earth. And he does not plan to no purpose. I love that. It's this awareness, very Christian awareness, that... Our world is created by God, and if we love this world, it's because God makes us love this world. The world reflects his beauty, and he ultimately is the one who deserves our love. So anyway, there are lots of gems in the Silmarillion, but it is a hard book to read. So, on our Discord server with our Patreon community, we have decided that this upcoming month of May is going to be the month where, during which we are going to read the Silmarillion, and we're going to read it together. So I made a division in four weeks and at Pentecost if you read along with us you will have read The Silmarillion and we know that we can all use a little bit of help because it's not an easy book to read but it's so rich and so helpful if you if you want to understand the, the greater world uh, that Tolkien created so we're going to read chapters 1 to 6 in the first week and then we'll talk together about it on our Discord server. So again, patreon.com slash fatherroderick if you want to join the club. Take care, and God bless. <laughs>